Guys, we're continuing on in our uh, series this morning in uh, Apprentice series, yeah, what it looks like to, to be close to Jesus, to follow Him, to learn from Him, to uh, do the things that He does. And, and we're, we're turning this morning, we're looking at Priscilla, uh, one of His early apprentices, uh, Priscilla, and we're looking at Priscilla leading. Uh, and we'll be reading this morning from uh, Acts chapter 18. So Acts chapter 18, uh, if you have it on your device or your, your Bible or uh, church Bible, page 1114, but uh, words will be on the screen as well, and I'll read uh, from Acts chapter 18. Let's pray for a moment as we come to God's Word. Father God, we thank You for Your presence with us by the power of Your Spirit. We thank You that You're with us, speaking to us through Your living Word, and we thank You that You inhabit the praises of Your people. So, yeah, Father, help us to be open. Help us to have open minds, open hearts, open lives to respond to your word this morning, to commit ourselves to listening to you, to following you, to serving you. Lord, speak for your servants are listening. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. So, um, Acts chapter 18, uh, reading the first four verses and then skipping down a little to verse 18, uh, and it's entitled, In Corinth. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla. Because Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome, Paul went to see them, and because he was a, a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. And then moving on to the verse 18. Paul stayed on in Corinth for some time. Then he left the brothers and sisters and sailed for Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. Before he sailed, he had his hair cut off at Sancria because of a vow he had taken. They arrived at Ephesus where Paul left Priscilla and Aquila. He himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to spend more time with them, he declined. But as he left, he promised, I will come back if it is God's will. Then he set sail for Ephesus. When he landed at Caesarea, he went up to Jerusalem and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time in Antioch, Paul set out from there and traveled from place to place throughout the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the Scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. Amen. Amen. Well, folks, I have, um, if as we continue in our apprentice series and we're speaking of Priscilla leading, um, I have met with a couple of Priscillas, a few Priscillas in my lifetime, uh, not very many, but, but a few of them. Uh, and uh, we'll maybe pop the, there we'll go now. This Priscilla Presley, okay, um, now that's not me with, I never had that much hair. But um, long story short, 1990, in Nashville, 
visiting uh, a country music um, venue, as you do when you're in Nashville, and uh, Priscilla Presley just happened to be there, uh, and I got to, to meet with her ever so briefly, as lots of other people were doing. But, uh, and that's a, a long story and a story for another day, but another Priscilla... <laughs> <laughs> Another Priscilla that's much closer to home uh, for us that I uh, have met and know, uh, Priscilla McConkey. Priscilla McConkey, one of our own, isn't she lovely? And uh, we really had, Nicola and I had to drag her screaming uh, and kicking to get a photograph of her uh, for this morning. So Priscilla, thank you and forgive me. Um, but Priscilla is one of our wonderful volunteers uh, that helps around the church. She helps in the office, and she arranges our flower rota. So when you see the flowers here, week by week, Priscilla has made that happen. You'll never see her up on the stage. You'll never see her up on the platform, unless you maybe sneak in on a Saturday afternoon or something when she's putting the flowers here. But she's working away behind the scenes, like many of our volunteers. And if you ever receive flowers from Orangefield, it might have a wee, uh, a wee card on it that's signed by me or Gareth, but it's Priscilla that makes it happen. So along with all our other volunteers this morning, we acknowledge and we thank you, those who are in the, uh, on the, up front, those who are behind the scenes, we commission you, we thank you all sincerely and equally this morning. And that leads us on to our Priscilla that we're looking at this morning here uh, in, in Scripture, uh, in our Bible reading. Uh, and she is a Priscilla from whom we all have much to learn uh, in, as we seek to serve in ministry and in mission in the church. Uh, Priscilla, w w this morning, you see, we want to look at Priscilla, Priscilla's leadership role in the church, and we want to learn from that. But we also want to underline afresh our congregation's commitment to having both men and women serving equally, uh, in equal capacity, and at every level in our church service and leadership uh, of our church. And we, we acknowledge and understand that whilst other brothers and sisters in the Lord that we fully respect and love within the wider church family, they may hold differing positions on these things. But within the Presbyterian Church in Ireland, we have long recognized the equal and vital ministry of women and the role they play in church leadership. In fact, the Presbyterian Church in Ireland has been ordaining women as ruling elders under Kirk Sessions for 100 years hundred years, and as teaching elders for 50 years. And at Orangefield, we have had female elders serving on our church leadership team, our Kirk Session, now for many years, for many decades, with, with wonderful saints such as Elsie Quinn and Margaret Kloss leading the way, and being followed by many, many other females in church leadership. Our previous clerk of session was a lady, Ruth McConnell, now, lest there be any confusion around this, Ruth McConnell is still a lady. <laughs> okay, sorry, she's just not the clerk of session anymore. But when we elected six new elders as a congregation to our, our leadership team, to our Kirk session in November, we elected three uh, men and three women onto our session. We have our female accredited preachers in Deborah Ford and Sarah McCulloch, and, uh, and earlier in the year, Karen Jardine uh, was with us on placement, and she will um, commence uh, ordination training later this month uh, within the, the church, within PCI. And we have many, many other very capable and gifted and talented uh, female teachers and leaders within our church family, 
for whom we thank God. So we are what we would call an egalitarian congregation. We elect and choose our leaders based on their gifting and on their calling and not on their gender. And we do that not because, well, we want to get into step with whatever's going on somewhere else in the world, or we do it not because of tradition, uh, or, or not because of the spirit of the age, or not because of we've always done it that way. We do it because we believe that that is what the Bible teaches. The Bible is our, our authority for life and faith and witness and the church. And that's why we do it this way, because we believe this is what God's Word teaches. And as we see, we see this principle then demonstrated in the New Testament, amongst other places uh, in the ministry of Priscilla. And we look at that first, and then we broaden this out slightly to see how the whole unfolding work of God in His church and in His world points to this biblical calling and the responsibility of both men and women to lead in the church equally together under God. So this lady Priscilla, she was perhaps one of the most influential people in the early church. She proved herself to be an effective teacher. Her life and legacy were both a challenge and an inspiration to all of those in leadership in the church today. And we can learn from her example. In Romans 16, Paul refers to Priscilla as one of his co-workers in Christ Jesus. And he talks of her willingness to risk her life for him, for the church, and for the gospel. And when we add together the various mentions of Priscilla in Scripture, we see that she and her husband Aquila accompanied Paul to plant churches in Corinth, in Ephesus, and in Rome, three of the most important and influential cities in the Roman Empire at that time. Now, Scripture, it is silent regards Priscilla's conversion to Christ. But it's most likely that she and Aquila came to faith uh, through the mission work of the church in Rome at the time. They were forced to leave the city, although, uh, however, around 50 AD, when it tells us here, when, when uh, Emperor Claudius uh, evicted all the Jews from the city. The couple relocated to Corinth, and it was there that the Apostle Paul first uh, met Priscilla and Aquila, as we see here in Acts chapter 18. After ministering together in Corinth for 18 months, Priscilla and Aquila accompanied Paul to plant a new church in Ephesus in the spring of 52 AD. And it was there that Priscilla distinguished herself as a gifted teacher and leader. And according to our reading here, it tells us that Paul left Priscilla and Aquila to shepherd the church in Ephesus as he moved on to strengthen the disciples in other places. And then at some point after the death of Emperor Claudius, she and Aquila moved back to Rome. They gathered a church at their home prior to Paul writing the letter to the Romans uh, where we read in, in, in chapter 16. He says, Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ Jesus. They risked their lives for me. Not only, uh, not only I, but all the churches and the gent of the Gentiles are grateful for them, to them. All the churches of the, the Gentiles are grateful to them. They obviously had quite an influence on those places and on those churches. And several years later, when Paul penned his second letter to Timothy, he asked Timothy to greet Priscilla and Aquila, who were apparently back in Ephesus. Greet Priscilla and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. And then when Paul sent a letter from Rome to the church in Corinth, he wrote, Aquila and Priscilla greet you warmly in the Lord. 
And so does the church that meets at their house. The couple, they eventually returned to Rome, and tradition holds that Priscilla was martyred there and buried in the city. And, and, and as we look at Priscilla's ministry, one of the, the clues as to the importance of her ministry is in the order that her and her husband's names are given in Luke, by Luke in Acts, and, and by Paul in his letters. Of the six times that the two names are mentioned, Priscilla is listed first in the list of the two names. And you see, according to scholars, placing the female name first was a, was a deviation from the, the cultural norm of the time. It's a bit like our Mr. and Mrs. The Roman husband's name usually appeared first. So when the, the new in the New Testament, when the writers refer to the secular occupation of tent makers and to their house, the order is, is Aquila and then Priscilla. It happens twice. But when ministry is in view, when they're speaking about ministry, it appears as Priscilla and Aquila. And this happens four times. And this, the scholars and the, the theologians would suggest this actually uh, suggests that Priscilla has the, the possessed and exercised the, the, the dominant ministry and leadership skills within the couple. Dr. Luca, a polished author, a careful and accurate scribe, he would not break with literary and cultural traditions without a good reason. He was so impressed with Priscilla and her ministry that he listed her name first intentionally. And in a male-dominated society, Priscilla proved to be an exemplary teacher. It tells us in verse 26 of our reading that even though Apollos, when they met Apollos, even though it tells us that Apollos was a learned man with thorough knowledge of the Scripture, she was able to explain to him the way of God more adequately. And you know, this beautifully illustrates how Paul, Paul mentored Priscilla and Priscilla mentored Apollos, uh, who then went on to share the gospel and the leadership skills as well. And Gareth will be looking more at this mentoring role of Priscilla uh, next week. But Priscilla's legacy, uh, it provides encouragement and uh, for men and women today in, in ministry of this example of this lady who sacrificed everything for the sake of the church and the gospel. She embraced her God-given gifts and abilities, and she used them wisely, participating in and, and even leading team ministry. You see, really, the bottom line is the body of Christ was designed for interdependence. Men and women complementing one another. Together. Together. We work best. And women have contributed much to the ministry and life of the church throughout its history simply vital to the life of the church, and, and yet their role in this area has not been free from controversy. But Scripture tells us here, and, and throughout Scripture, we see that the early church had a, a varied and faithful ministry arising from the fact that all of God's people were gifted by the Holy Spirit for the purpose of building up the church together. You see, we see from Scripture that any person could exercise a ministry which, which, remember, means service. Any person who was gifted and called by God and affirmed by the church. And so broadening this, this out a little bit uh, as, uh, from our focus on Priscilla now, we, we see the biblical basis for both male and female leadership is found within the creation accounts in Genesis. The basis for female leadership in creation 
Genesis 1.27, going right back to the start. So God created mankind in His own image. In the image of God, He created them. Male and female, He created them. This creation in God's image represents the identification of persons as male and female, both genders together. Both genders together representing God's character and God's nature most fully here on earth. Secondly, this mutuality is confirmed by the fact that both the man and the woman together, without distinction, are charged with responsibility for all of God's creation, to rule over it, to take care of it, to be good stewards of it. In Genesis 1, it tells us that God blessed them together and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish and the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living thing, every creature that moves on the ground. And this equal partnership of man and woman is reflected too in Genesis 2 in the story there. You see, Genesis 2 indicates that the woman partnering with the man will be an appropriate helper. Now, it's really important to notice that this word helper, when it's used of a person in the Old Testament, it always refers to God in 29 places, apart from one reference to David. And the word helper then in Genesis 2 is used in the same way as it is used to describe God helping Israel. It's not used in a way to to, to make the woman submissive or uh, subservient to the man. No more than God was submissive or subservient to Israel. It's understood that the woman has helper alongside the man. Together, they rule and minister. But in the garden, both the man and the woman disobey God together. Sin enters the world, and, and, and relationships are broken. The relationship between humanity and God is broken. The relationship between men and women is broken. And we know, folks, we know, don't we, that there's something wrong with this world. This world is broken. It's broken. But in Genesis 3, in the very next chapter, God makes a promise. God makes a promise that He will one day send one who will defeat the devil and restore broken relationships, and He gets to work. And so the rest of the Bible, the rest of history, is the unfolding of God's great restoration plan. And we get glimpses of this restored, complementary male-female leadership in the Old Testament. We see it the basis for female leadership in Israel. We see Miriam, for instance, leading alongside Moses and Aaron. In Exodus 15, when God set the children of Israel free from slavery in Egypt and brought them through the, the, the sea into the the promised land, when he parted the sea for them. Exodus 15, when Pharaoh's horses, chariots, and horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought the waters of the sea back over them, but the Israelites walked through the sea on dry ground. Then Miriam, who it describes interestingly as the prophet, Aaron's sister, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women followed her. Miriam leads the way. And in the book of Judges, we see Deborah, the prophet, leading alongside Barak, the military general. Judges chapter 4. Very clearly, now Deborah, a prophet, the wife of Lepidoth, was leading Israel. Was leading Israel at the time. She held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. 
And the Israelites went up to her to have their disputes decided. We see glimpses in the Old Testament, but you know the great restoration, true equality, men and women truly reflecting the image of God again most fully together starts to be fulfilled in the coming of Jesus Christ. In Jesus coming into the world, that which was broken, He begins to fix. That which was broken, He begins to restore. As He comes to restore all things back in the right relationship with God, that which was broken begins to be healed and made whole again. Injustices begin to be made right, and there is this great leveling up at the cross. As, God, as God's kingdom comes, as God calls us to oneness and to unity in Christ, broken relationships between races, between Jew and Gentile, begin to be restored. Broken relationships between those of different social backgrounds, between slave and free, begin to be restored. And broken relationships between the genders, between male and female, begin to be restored. And you see, these restorations are the sign of the kingdom coming, of restored relationships between humanity and God, restored relationships between people. These restorations are the sign of the kingdom coming, the coming kingdom wherein all things will ultimately be restored unto God one day when Jesus Christ returns. Now, in the first century, in the first century, in the time of Jesus' earthly ministry, women were usually regarded as subordinate and inferior in virtually every area of life. But Jesus, however, just look at the radicalness, the revolutionary way that Jesus treats and teaches and includes women in His ministry. He affirmed the worth and the value of women as persons to be included alongside men in God's covenant of love and service to Him. We see a basis for female leadership in Jesus' ministry. According to Luke chapter 8, many women were in Jesus' band of traveling disciples, were in His first band of apprentices. It tells us after this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. And yes, the twelve were with Him, and also some women, Mary, Joanna, Susanna, and many others, it tells us. And you know, these same women were the last followers to be present at the cross and at the burial. And these women were the first to discover and proclaim Jesus' resurrection from the dead on that first glorious Easter morning. Jesus' attitude to women was remarkable. It was revolutionary. He reached out to women who were rejected. In spite of, of laws regarding uncleanness, He allowed a woman with a 12-year menstrual problem to, to touch Him, and He commended her faith. It was a Samaritan woman that Jesus, it was to her that Jesus made His most explicit affirmation that He was the, the Messiah, and she became His first evangelist. It tells us, John tells us, many of the Samaritans from that town believed in Him because of the woman's testimony. You see, in Jesus' day, responsible teachers were not, were not supposed to teach women. 
Nevertheless, Jesus taught women. He included them in his group of committed followers. He taught Mary of Bethany, and he commanded her learning to her sister. In Matthew 21, Jesus, he challenges the religious, the religious leaders. The man, he tells him, he says, I tell you the truth, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. In John 4 and John 8, Jesus offers salvation directly to women who were known as adulteresses. In Matthew 26, Jesus permitted a sinful woman to, to minister to him, to anoint him and kiss his feet. While Jesus was in Bethany in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. And Jesus said, truly I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her, in memory of her and her ministry. So Jesus' inclusion of, of, of and ministry to and through women within his own life and teaching were, were a powerful witness to the, to the early church of the partnership of men and women within its membership and its ministry. You see, Jesus ushered in a whole new era. He was the bridge between the old and the new. And yet he chooses his first disciples carefully. They had to have, because they had to have credibility within that traditionally conservative Jewish patriarchal society of the day from within which this new messianic Jesus movement was being launched. So they were 12 because they represented the 12 tribes of Israel. They had to be Jews, not Gentiles. They had to be free, not slaves, and they had to be men, not women. But this was in the early transitionary period of the church. But the old was being left behind. Something new was being birthed. A new day was dawning. And the new thing would be different. The new thing would be much more inclusive. And so we see the basis for female leadership in the early church. As Paul, as Paul boldly proclaims that wonderfully equalizing and unifying declaration in Galatians 3, he says to the church, he says, in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. So there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ. All who trust in Jesus, all who are apprentices of His, we are all children of God. We are all clothed with Christ. We are all one and we are all equal. And we all have been given God-given gifts and abilities, and we all have a ministry in the church and to the world as we partner with God in His mission. And as we share and live out the good news of His transforming gospel in our world. And so following on from the original 12 and clear from the rest of the New Testament, the new Israel could be Jews or Gentiles, free or slave, men or women. Furthermore, and this just struck me as well as I was preparing for this today, furthermore, in the Old Testament, the sign of the covenant was circumcision, which was only administered to men. 
A woman had to be included in the covenant through a relationship with a man. But Jesus, in the new covenant, makes baptism the sign of inclusion. And it is administered to both men and women directly. And when the Holy Spirit came in power at Pentecost, and in fulfillment of the prophecy of Joel chapter 2, both men and women were present, and both men and women were filled with the Holy Spirit. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my Spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy, even on my servants, on my ministers, both men and women. I will pour out my Spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. It's foundational for the church, and it's a foundational role of women, significant in the establishment and teaching of the church. For instance, reflected in Acts chapter 2, when Paul writes, he says, we reached Caesarea and stayed at the house of Philip the evangelist, one of the seven. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied who prophesied. And in Acts 16, Paul begins the church in Philippi, the leading city of the district, with a group of women, including Lydia and her friends, as they gathered for prayer outside the city gate. So alongside Paul's already referenced pivotal proclamation in Galatians 3, and in addition to his mention of Priscilla and of Lydia, we see the basis for female leadership in Paul's writings as he mentioned some 11 other women by name who ministered with him, co-workers in the gospel and in the early church. And he describes those women in the exact same way as the men who partnered with him in ministry, co-workers in the gospel. And then there are three women known as leaders of, of, of house churches, Chloe in 1 Corinthians 1, Nympha in Colossians 4, and Aphia in Philemon 2. And Paul includes four women in Romans 16, Mary, Persis, Trophina, and Trophosa, who he says have worked very hard in the Lord. In Philippians 4, Yodia and Synthetic are praised by Paul as having contended by his side for the cause of the gospel. In Romans 16, Phoebe is named as a, a deacon in the church of Sancra, and Junia is described by Paul as outstanding amongst the apostles. These 13 women surveyed here provide clear evidence from Paul that women did participate in and had a vital role in the gospel ministry and in the church. His common terminology makes no distinctions between the roles or functions between men and women in ministry and leadership. And now, of course, there have been objections in some quarters from female leadership within the church over the years. But when those objections are made, they are often made on the basis of a few verses from Paul's writing in 1 Corinthians and 1 Timothy. But we have to see the bigger picture. Given the overall sweep of Scripture with regards men and women in leadership and ministry, the only way to reasonably understand those particular verses in Corinthians and Timothy is by seeing them as Paul seeking to address specific circumstances that had arisen in particular congregations at a time when Paul was seeking to establish decent 
order and good governance within a fledgling church, which in one or two places had become a little anarchic and chaotic. These verses refer to those instances particularly when we take them as we must within the wider sweep of Paul's own writings and the Bible generally. For we've seen that Paul overwhelmingly in his writings sings the praises of his female co-workers. And his writings have to be seen in the bigger picture in that sweep of the, the unfolding God story from Genesis to Revelation, including, as we've seen, the basis for female leadership as set out in creation, in Israel, in Jesus' ministry, and in the life of the early church. And whilst much has been written on this subject over the years, can I just highlight for you one very readable little book that has, I found very helpful as I've prepared for this morning. It's a book by a former moderator of the Presbyterian Church in Ireland, uh, the Reverend Dr. Trevor Morrow. It's a little book called Equal to Rule. Uh, and if you'd like to take this discussion a little further or research a little further, then this is, is a good place to start. Uh, there are other many good books out there as well, but Equal to Rule by Trevor Morrow. Let me recommend it. So as whilst I've said, there, there are other dear brothers and sisters who we love and respect and, uh, within the wider church who hold a different position on some of these things than we do. As I finish, I hope this morning that we see why, as a church leadership here at Orangefield, our Kirk session firmly believes that the basis for biblical leadership is dependent on gifting and calling and not on gender. And this morning, as we commit ourselves afresh into God's service, in whatever role He has called us or is calling us into, I simply share with you the exhortation of Peter to the church, to each and every one of us. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others. As faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms, if anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Shall we pray together for a moment? Let us pray. And as we remain in God's presence and open to Him, we simply take a moment in His presence and in the silence of our own hearts to respond to what He is saying to us, to what He is showing us from His Word this morning. Father God, we we thank you that in the beginning you created us in your image, male and female, to gather, to represent you, to represent your character and your nature most fully here on earth. We thank you that you have called us to gather, to reflect your nature into our world, to support one another and to gather, to rule over, to take care of, to steward your creation. And we thank you that in the death, resurrection, and ascension of your Son, Jesus Christ, 
and through the outpouring of your Holy Spirit, you have started to restore those relationships that were broken at the fall. We thank you that now within the church there is a sense in which there is neither male nor female. We are all equal and we are all one in Christ Jesus. And we thank you for the various different gifts and abilities that you have given us within the church with which to serve you and your church and in your world. We thank you for the examples in the Bible that you have given us to inspire and encourage us in our calling, in our service, and in our ministries. So as we commit ourselves this morning to serving you in all the days ahead, would you fill us afresh with your spirit and your word, with your grace and your truth, and help us to serve you with the strength you provide so that in all things you may be praised through Jesus Christ, and to him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Amen.